Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel. My name is Aramithius, and this week we are continuing our look at the Elder Scrolls texts. We are now picking up with the words of clan mother Anisi, given that it's the season of elsewhere and all things Khajiit for Elder Scrolls Online. Now I can actually start doing some vaguely topical things, now I've got some basics down. But this is the Khajiit creation myth, which I think was first presented in The Elder Scrolls 3, and it's presented as a story that's being told by one of the clan mothers of the Khajiit that's being told to inform someone about something and presumably to help them do something or help them to be something. That's kind of the takeaway that I think anyway, and that's that's kind of the way that we get presented with most Khajiiti folktales and myths and so on, that it's something that is being told to someone else and then overheard or written down once it's been heard. Everything that we get from the Khajiit is an oral tale. So we'd expect this to be quite different or at least different around various in various ways to other tales that we get from the Khajiit in the same way that the Argonians have different creation myths or at least different bases different bases different bases for um, their creation myths I should probably also point out I am not doing this in a Khajiit voice so it's probably going to sound a bit weird until we get to some specifically Khajiiti words Oh, I should also point out that an awful lot of my understanding of this particular text owes quite a bit to Scourgekiss, who made an absolutely fantastic exegesis of this text in one of the Selective Lawcasts on Khajiit. So in order to get a far more educated take on this text, the far more structured take on it, check out the first of the two Khajiit Selective Lawcasts so that you can hear what Skurgicus has got to say as well. And now to the text. Anisi tells you, you are no longer a mewing kitten and you have learned to keep secrets from Anisi, and so Anisi tells you. In the beginning, there were two littermates, Ahnur and Fadomai. After many phases, Fadomai said to Ahnur, let us wed and make children and share our happiness. And straight at the start there, we've got a difference between this myth and the others as they're presented to us. In those, Anu and Padme are brothers who are at war. That's their first interaction between each other, apart from the creation of Nir, is of conflict. Whereas the start for this is family, for love and togetherness and for things to be shared. And so it's a much different basis or a much different outlook on what creation is than we have in other creation myths. Although I should point out that it's not the creation of Nern as such, this is the creation of the Arabis. The Khajiit have a more traditionally Moorish view of Mundus as such, and we'll get to that later. And they gave birth to Alkosh, the first cat. And Abnur said, Alkosh, we give you time, for what is as fast or as slow as a cat? And they gave birth to Kanathi, the winds. Kanathi, to you we give the sky, for what can fly higher than the wind? And they gave birth to Magrus, the cat's eye. Magrus, to you we give the sun, for what is brighter than the eye of a cat? And they gave birth to Mara, the mother cat. 
Mara, you are love, for what is more loving than a mother? And they gave birth to Shrendar the runt, and they and said, Shrendar, we give you mercy, for how does a runt survive except by mercy? I think I'm just going to stop there for a second and note that there's some differences here in how the initial spirits are presented. There's some very, very obvious similarities. Alkosh is Akatosh, Kanathi is Kinnereth, and Magrus is Magnus. But they're presented in quite a different context. They, almost all of them, when we look at other tales, don't have their roles. Only Akatosh is really present as the thing with a role. But everything in this tale is given a role straight out of the gate. And that also will become important when we get to the next few litters but for now that's just something to bear in mind and in particular for magrus we've got an association with magrus with the sun and that doesn't happen until the creation of of mundus in most of these tales but here we've got magrus being associated with the sun at his moment of birth uh, which is a quite a different outlook it gives a sense of predestination almost to how Mundus turned out which is quite different to how the other creation myths show it it puts Lokan as the driving force and the thing that's kind of motivating all these changes for the mortal plane whereas this has the big one of the big events of the creation of the mortal plane right at the beginning and many phases passed, and Ahnur and Fadamai were happy. And Ahnur said, we should have more children to share our happiness. And Fadamai agreed. And she gave birth to Hamora, and she gave birth to Hirsin, and she gave birth to Meruns, and Mafala, and Sangin, and Shigorath, and many others. This second litter pretty much cleanly maps onto the Daedra, whereas before we had some of the Aedra and Magnus, which suggests that there's something like the same tiering going on, but it's not precisely the same as we have with the other myths. Everything within the Khajiiti myth is much more mixed together, and that's kind of shown here with the kind of the many others. The second litter is just the multitude of everything that we understand of as Etarda but they're all shown here as being coming from the same source and just at different times and under different influences rather than being distinctly different beings. Magrus is the same kind of being as Hircine, which is the same kind of being as Alkosh, and that's again a different take compared to how Men and Myrrh see the original spirits. And Fadamai said, Hamora, you are the tides, for who can say whether the moons predict the tides or the tides predict the moons? Hircine, you are the hungry cat, for what hunts better than a cat with an empty belly? Meruns, you are the jakajit, for what is more destructive than a kitten? Mafala, you are the clan mother, for what is more secretive than the ways of the clan mothers? Sangin, you are the blood cat, for who can control the urges of blood? Shigarath, you are the skooma cat, for what is crazier than a cat on skooma? This passage, to me, is also showing how it's based on an oral tradition and has changed over time. 
we've got some things here which feel a bit anachronistic, particularly the idea of having a cat on Skooma. That can't have been said at the actual creation because Skooma didn't exist yet. So this is a modern reinterpretation of what the gods are in my in my ideas here that um, we've got someone looking back and saying well what are these beings like oh they're like this let's understand them as something on skooma or a kitten or whatever that's pretty much the tellers reinterpretation of what those beings are I think I'm not sure but the inclusion of skooma here just really makes me think that things are being reinterpreted in a modern context, so to speak, rather than just being uh, the Khajiit um, gods and myths that have always been the same. And Merons' role here is the Jakajit. That is literally the young Khajiit, or literally a kitten, which is why what's more destructive than a kitten? Because as Skurgicus pointed out in the Selective Lawcast, kittens don't really know how to control themselves, they they don't retract their claws properly, they, um, they bat things and they claw them, and just generally don't control themselves very well, which is why they cause so much pain. Which is an interesting take on Merun's Dagon, that it's a being that cannot be any other way other than what he is, rather than saying that it's this malevolent being which must be opposed, which must be entirely evil. It's just, yeah, that's just Merrin's. He's a, he's a kitten and just doesn't understand. And just one point to clarify, those of you that, that know your Ta'agra will know that the moons and the lunar lattice are the Jakajay. The origins of the words are not linked. I've checked this. Jakajit is literally just young cat. It's not connected to the Jakajay in the slightest. And I'll talk a bit more about the Jakajay when we get to the bits on the moons. And Ahnur said, Two letters is enough, for too many children will steal our happiness. But Kanathi went to Fadamai and said, Fadamai, mother, Kanathi grows lonely so high above the world, where not even my brother Alkosh can fly. Fadamai took pity on her and tricked Ahnur to make her pregnant again. And now we've got this telling as well. This is where everything starts to go wrong. That Ahnur doesn't want any more kittens and Fadamai is perfectly happy to have more kittens. Uh, Skirtix pointed out this is where the ideas of sharing in family and everything else start to disappear in um, in response to there being too, being too many. The idea of too many starts to come in here and be said that, well, there won't be enough that then we can only be so happy if there's so many people, um, which Skirticus attributes to a, a, a zero-sum mentality, which I think I agree with, but I'm not entirely sure how it fits with everything else. It's... It's quite central to Skurgicus's understanding, I know that, but it doesn't necessarily have to impact on the metaphysics necessarily. So it's a neat idea, but I'm not sure that it's the only one out there. But the, t the key takeaway for me on this 
is that Ahnur is the one starting to sow the discord. If you think, think back to Anu and Padme, the way that that story is told is that Padme is the one who professes his love for Nir and so starts all the rows, is the one who then beats Nir and so on and so forth. Whereas in this one, Fadamai almost seems like the innocent, which is a very different take to how pretty much every single race out there, except those who perhaps revere Sithis as the ultimate creator and don't call Pad Sithis Padme or anything like that. Only those are the ones that even start to think that um, that Sithis is the innocent party, so to speak. And even then, Sithis or Padme is the active party. Whereas here, there's a mutuality that we don't see anywhere else. And in this particular passage as well, you've got a separation and a distance, which implies that the world's almost there already. You've got Kanarthi being flying high um, where Alkosh can't go, which implies that there's a sky which hasn't been said yet. The, the assumption of the world being in place is something that threads throughout the whole of this particular narrative, which is also one of my reasons for thinking that this is just a retell, this, well, this is just, that this is a retelling from a position of worldliness, from a world that, from a point of view that can't think about anything but there being a world. And Fadamai gave birth to the moons and their motions, and she gave birth to Nerni, the majestic sands and lush forests, and she gave birth to Azura, the dusk and dawn. Now here we start seeing the world appearing in the persona of Nerni, although it's not quite the same as the world of Nern existing at this point, it's just the ideas of the things maybe, because it's not yet a place. It's just the sands and the forests. It's not referred to as a place until further down in the text. And another thing that also fascinates me with this particular line, which is why I've stopped right here, is that the moons and their motions. According to the Khajiit, the moons are Joan and Jode, but their motions are listed as separate entities here, that the different moon phases have a different impact or not so much they have a different impact, sorry, that they have a separate existence from the moons themselves, which is a really interesting conception of how things work and causality, so to speak, because it's not a question of the moons producing the effect of their motions, but the motions being an entirely distinct thing which has an interplay with the moons which is a very, very different way of looking at it. It kind of reminds me of Thomas Aquinas's ways of looking at the existence of God when he traces back notions of causality and motion. And oh, I can't quite remember what the third one is, but there are three elements that he lists off, which generally get kind of wrapped up in to a bundle about causality in general in modern philosophy. Whereas, Aquinas makes the distinction between them and the moons and how they move being distinct things here kind of reminds me of that. And from the beginning, Nerni and Azura fought for their mother's favour. Anur caught Fadimai while she was still birthing and he was angry 
and Nora struck Fadamai and she fled to birth the last of her litter away in the great darkness. Fadamai's children heard what had happened, and they all came to be with her and protect her from Anur's anger. And this is another huge difference between this creation myth and the others. In the Anuad in general, Padme strikes Nir as she, after she's given birth to the Twelve Worlds. And, but here it's the Anu equivalent striking the Padme equivalent. Nirni is something that's the next layer down, a creation of the two. The Anuad has Nir being a result of the interplay between Anu and Padme, but she is the same order of beings as they are, whereas Nirni here is quite different. And we also got the Great Darkness being given a shout out here. It's possibly the same thing as the Void in the Anuad, but it doesn't map precisely for reasons we'll see a bit later. And Fadamai gave birth to Lokage, the last of her litter in the Great Darkness. And the heart of Lokage was filled with the Great Darkness. And when he was born, the Great Darkness knew its name, and it was Namira. And the, that's why we've got this difference in, between the Great Darkness and the Void. The Void is typically associated with Sithis in most creation myths, but in the Anuad itself, the Void isn't really linked to either of them. It's just a place where stuff happens. Whereas the Great Darkness here is personified as Namira, as something like the Daedra, but not actually the Daedra. This is not the second litter for the Khajiit. This is something else entirely. And we've also got Lokaj, the Lok obvious Lokan analogue, being birthed in this situation. Ordinarily, that would link Lokan with Sithis and Padme and all that side of things, but here he's not really got links to either. Um, while Fadamai is doing good things for her family and promoting the units and that sort of thing. Lokage is not interested in that, is filled with the, uh, the great darkness and influenced by Namira, which has quite an impact on Khajiiti theology. Uh, the third moon, which is the moon of Lokage, is located in darkness and in the shadow of the other two moons and is a bad thing which is reflected in this particular myth and Fadame knew her time was near Fadame said Jakajay to you Fadame gives the lattice for what is steadier than the phases of the moons your eternal motions will protect us from Athnur's anger and the moons left to take their place in the heavens and Athnur growled and shook the great darkness but he could not cross the lattice. And here we see the Jakajay becoming the lunar lattice, becoming the moons, and being given a name in what feels like quite a slapdash manner almost, like the audience is supposed to know what's going on. It feels like, again, this is an oral tale, and people will already know the story and know the characters involved. And this is just an explanation for why the people that the, the audience has already known about is the way it is. And we've also got the lattice being something that separates 
Anur and Nun, and separates off Anu and Ethereus, maybe, from Nun itself. But this is the first time that we see that separation as a good thing, as something that is protective and seeking to produce something that's uh, that's positive out of that separation. Everything else from the other creation myths is that separation is bad. Separation is something that, while it sounds like a good idea, could potentially be regretted later. Whereas here, it's almost a certain positive. And Fadamai said, Nurni, to you Fadamai leaves her greatest gift. You will give birth to many people as Fadamai gave birth today. When Nurni saw that Azura had nothing, Nurni left smiling. And all Fadamai's children left except Azura. And Fadamai said, To you, my favoured daughter, Fadamai leaves her greatest gift. To you, Fadamai leaves her secrets. And Fadamai told her favoured daughter three things. And so which is the greatest gift here? We've got Nurni being told that she will give birth to many people and have the gift of bearing children, whereas Azura has been given the gift of secrets. We don't know precisely which is supposedly the greater of the two, because they both get called that, but I would suggest that it may be Azura is the favoured one, simply because of the role that she plays later in the story, and the idea that and in telling both of them that they're the greatest gift, it's an act of deception, which inherently involves secrets. So that association with the greatest gift and secrets just makes me think Azura is the favoured one here. And quite what those three things are, they will get hinted at through the rest of the narrative, but they never get precisely spelled out. And Fadamai said, when Nurni is filled with her children, take one of them and change them. Make the fastest, cleverest, most beautiful people and call them Khajiit. And this makes the Khajiit a predestined people. This is something that Fadamai has had planned for a while at least. We don't know how long, but in asking for the Khajiit to be created here, then that makes them part of the overall plan. So Fadamai has designs for her grandchildren, so to speak. And Fadamai said, the Khajiit must be the best climbers, for if Massa and Secunda fail, they must climb Kanathi's breath to set the moons back on their courses. And this passage is a little strange. It's another one of those things that makes me think that it's an oral tale which is adjusted to where the teller is, because we have Massa and Secunda. We don't have Joan and Jode. So, so it makes me think that whoever is telling this is used to thinking of the moons as Massa and Secunda, which is a more modern way of referring to the moons rather than Joan and Jode, who were originally Aldmeri deities, if you look at their entries in Varieties of Faith. And this idea of the Khajiit climbing up and setting the moon back in their courses is where we get the idea of the Khajiiti Tower, so to speak, that the Khajiit are something that is helping maintain the integrity of Mundus. But we don't know precisely what that means. There have been talk about 
the Khajiit climbing up on each other's shoulders and forming a tower and going to the moon that way. But there's not an awful lot of concrete information that we have there. It's a very, very fun image that we've got a bunch of Khajiit climbing up on each other's backs and reach going high enough to reach all the moons. But that's the only time we ever see it. And Fatimai said, the Khajiit must be the best deceivers, for they must always hide their nature from the children of Ahnur. And Fatimai said, the Khajiit must be the best survivors, for Nurani will be jealous, and she will make the sands harsh and the forests unforgiving, and the Khajiit will always be hungry and at war with Nurani. And here's where the Khajiit tale starts to line up a bit more with the general Murrish point of view, that Nundus is a hostile place. It's not even said to be a bad place here, but it's a place where you will be hungry, a place where you will suffer. And so that kind of rejection of the material as an automatically good thing echoes the almost Gnostic views of the rest of the Mur and puts the Khajiit into the Murrish camp. And with these words, Fadamai died. After many phases, Nurani came to Lokaj and said, Lokaj, Fadamai told me to give birth to many children, but there is no place for them. And remember when I said earlier that Nurani was the deserts and the forests and everything else? She's been made all of those things without it being a place, without it being a space, which makes all the assignations of the previous spirits of Kanathi as the winds and the air and Alkosh as time and Mag Magrus as the sun even weirder because none of the events that we associate with those spirits having their roles in other creation myths have happened yet but now we're about to see that event happen and again Lorcan is the instigator although not necessarily because as much as Lokage is about to make this sort of a place into somewhere for everyone to be, it's Nurani that's the one asking him to do it. So, is the world causing Lokage to act in a particular way? That makes me think back to the Altmeri tale, The Heart of the World, which speaks about the heart of Lokan, saying that it, uh, the world was created to satisfy the heart of Lorcan. It's not quite the same here because Namira isn't involved and Namira is the great darkness which fills the heart of Lorcan. But it's the idea of Lorcan having a previous desire and a previous push to make the world out of something else. But the Khajiiti tale is unique in saying that Lorcan didn't come up with it on his own. And Lokaj said, Lokaj makes a place for children, and Lokaj puts you there so that you can give birth. But the heart of Lokaj was filled with the great darkness, and Lokaj tricked his siblings, so that they were forced into this new place with Noni. And many of Fadamai's children escaped and became the stars, and many of Fadamai's children died to make Noni's path stable, and the survivors stayed and punished Lokaj. This is pretty much exactly the Moorish tale that Lorcan is the trickster. Many of the Etada escaped and became the stars. It's 
given a backseat to the relational side, which is a really interesting spin on the creation myth in general, but it's the Moorish view pretty much exactly. Although one of the things that I find interesting here is that the ones that died to make Nerni's path stable and the survivors are distinct groups. When you look at the Aedra who died to create the world according to most of the other viewpoints out there, then they're still the ones punishing them as they diminish. It's Akatosh and Trinamak that are punishing Lorcan. Whereas here, the survivors, who are possibly another group, or at least it's implied that it's another group from the sentence structure, are the ones that punish Lokage. The children of Fadamai tore out the heart of Lokage and hid it deep within Narni. And they said, we curse you, noisy Lokage, to walk Narni for many phases. And this is where we potentially get the notion of Shezarines from most directly. The idea that Lokan has avatars that walk Mundus and essentially enact his will or things which vaguely act in the ways that we would expect Lokan and a mannish outlook to act. And this is also potentially, if you listen to conspiracy theorists, where Maik comes from that Maik is an avatar of Lokan, is this incarnation of Lokage that is walking Narni for many phases. But Narni soon forgave Lokage, for Narni could make children. And she filled herself with children, but cried because her favourite children, the forest people, did not know their shape. And Azura came to her and said, Poor Narni, stop your tears. Azura makes for you a gift of a new people. Nerni stopped weeping, and Azura spoke the first secret to the moons, and they parted and let Azura pass. And Azura took some of the forest people who were torn between man and beast, and she placed them in the best deserts and forests on Nerni. And Azura in her wisdom made them many shapes, one for every purpose. And Azura named them Khajiit, and told them her second secret, and taught them the value of secrets. And Azura bound the new Khajiit to the lunar lattice, as is proper for Narni's secret defenders. Then Azura spoke the third secret, and the moon shone down on the marshes, and their light became sugar. There is a fair bit to unpack here, so I'm possibly going to do a bit more rewinding than most, but it's interesting that Narni is forgiving Lokaj. I don't know what that means for whether Lokaj is still walking and doing things, but the link between Nern and Lokan is, is made very, very clear there. And we also have the Bosmeri tale coming out here, or links with the Bosmeri tale, because if you look at the text, the ooze, a fable, the forest children were formless and without shape, and then Ifri came along and gave them a shape, and which is will which we will get to in this particular tale later but it's not quite the same for one thing we have the phrase between man and beast now it's a bit odd it's a bit difficult to nail down precisely what this means because human is used generically to refer to man and myrrh in several texts so in it might be that that's what this text means 
when it talks about between man and beast. But it could also mean that you've got man and beast as in the proto-Nords and Cyrodiilux and so on, and that side of mannishness that is becoming Khajiit, rather than the more traditional thought that they could be descended from elves, which is would also fit with their outlook. They have a very, very Moorish way of looking at the world, but they're torn between man and beast, which makes it a bit difficult to... Um, to pin down precisely whether they were elves or men and whatever they were we'll soon see that the Bosma should potentially be the same thing. But Yifa heard the first secret and snuck in behind Azura and Yifa could not appreciate secrets and he told Nurni of Azura's trick. So Nurni made the deserts hot and the sands biting and Nurni made the forests wet and filled with poisons and Nurni thanked Yifa and made, let him change the forest people also. And Yifa did not have Azura's subtle wisdom. So Yifa made the forest people elves always and never beasts. And Yifa named them Bosma. And from that moment, they were no longer in the same litter as the Khajiit. Now there's part of me that thinks that there's something else going on with the transformation of the Khajiit here because it's immediately referred to as a trick. Uh, because it seems like Azura is changing the forest people without Nurni's consent, despite them being a gift of a new people, and that being explicitly what was said of Nurni. But that's a little unclear here. Um, it's also possible that um, that Azura was taking away Nurni's favourites in some way by doing this. Uh, Yifa is the analogue to Ifri, um, but is also acting more in accord with what Nurni wants in creating a stable people and so on and so forth. But it's quite obvious that that stability isn't particularly something that is appreciated by the Khajiit, there's the subtle wisdom of being able to change your shape and be flexible and change in accordance with what is needed is potentially what's going on here with the Khajiit, that that's kind of subtlety and understanding of differences of form and so on confers some sort of inherent advantage is I think what's going on there. And because Yifa had no appreciation for secrets, he shouted the first secret across all of the heavens with his last breath, so that all of Fadamai's children could cross the lattice. But Azura, in her wisdom, closed the ears of angry Ahnur and noisy Lokage, so that they alone did not hear the word. And here we have a possible hint that Yifa is one of the earth bones, which is a role that he's played in several of the mythologies, that he has a last breath and then dies. But we don't hear of the death specifically, but that's what that wording implies. He's one of the first spirits to die, as far as we're aware in this particular telling. And we also have here Yifa telling all of Fadamai's children how they can cross the lattice, 
which is a reason why some of the Daedra can interfere with Nern. You've not got that separation between the various points within the Arabus that is present in other tales and other tellings. There's no reference to Oblivion, there's no real mention of Aetherius, but there's just this kind of fluid division and the barrier of the lattice which is meant to keep things safe and quite although quite what Anur would do if Anur could cross the lattice potentially it implies that he would kill them maybe he would just obliterate everything and none of Fadamai's children would exist but that's supposition on my part uh, we don't really know and it would certainly be a little out of character for what we know of the rest of the creation myths that we have, that Anu is the creative one that brings all the 12 worlds together to form Nern. So is this a difference in outlook that the Khajiit have between what Anur and Fadamai offer compared to Anu and Padme? They clearly have different values despite being otherwise quite mirish in that outlook. And I've also not talked about the secrets as such. The first secret is something to do with motion, that those that hear it can cross the lattice. It's something to do with the nature of the lattice and how to get around it, or potentially the space that everyone is around and in, that everything is all one maybe? I, I don't know precisely that. That wording isn't there and it sounds a little horrible to me, but it's the best way I can put it, I think that it's this secret of motion and togetherness again, but I'm not totally sure. And we also don't know the second and third secrets either. We've got some rough hints of them that the Khajiit know the second secret, but quite what that second secret is, again, we don't know. And the third secret is the thing that enables the creation of moon sugar and does something to the moons. It strikes me that it's possible that all of the secrets are bound up in what the moons are doing and the role of the lunar lattice with creation. But I'm not 100% sure there. I'm not entirely sure what that might mean. And on that note of total and utter uncertainty. That's about it for this wander through the words of clan mother Anisi. I really hope you've enjoyed it and come back next time for when we take a look at another text, probably Shazar and the Divines, which will be in two weeks. Next week we're going back to our usual question setup where I'm going to one of the most basic questions within the Elder Scrolls franchises. What are the Elder Scrolls themselves? Until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glebotsky and Jeremy Saul. You can check out Jan's work on SoundCloud on the Songs from the Lost Land, and Jeremy's novel available and on YouTube. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hello. Hi. 
Do you like bad movies? Do you find yourself defending bad movies, saying things like, well, the soundtrack was okay, or the costumes were pretty fun? From the previous hosts of It's Not That Bad Podcast, we bring you Fresh Tomatoes, the movie podcast, from Simone LaRue and Chad Ekovitz. Every week, we review two movies that did not do well critically, but we say, hey, there are some nice things about them. Maybe Rotten Tomatoes was wrong. Maybe they're all fools, and you should watch these movies regardless. We'll also talk about scenes that could have saved it, and we'll often refer to Simone's cats because they're amazing and adorable, and we love them. <laughs> and at the end of each review, we will tell you whether we would watch this movie again, or in what circumstances we would recommend you watch this movie. So, join us on July 9th for the first drop of our main episode, and then two days later for our drop of our minisodes. And on Robots Radio Podcast Network. Come see us on July 9th! We love you so much already! Bye! Bye. The definition of a cryptid is an animal that has been claimed to exist, but never proven to exist. As we binged our favorite Netflix series and slayed our toughest bosses in a video game, we began to wonder about these creatures that appeared and stoked our imagination. What was the inspiration for the Demogorgon, or the Dementor? Well, my name is Dave, and with my co-host Austin, we bring you the Cryptic Cat. Every other Wednesday, we will bring you some information about our favorite modern cryptid. From TV to movies to video games, we explore nerd culture through the lens of extensively suspicious knowledge in cryptozoology. Find us on your favorite podcast service under the name The Cryptid Cast. And follow us on social media at The underscore Cryptid Cast. Come join the growing community of Cryptomania.